0: Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 down through verse 25. Matthew, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son." You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege we always have on the Lord's Day, and we have had to come and worship a God that is so glorious and so blessed and so kind and so merciful. We, we thank you for that, and thank you for just the privilege this day of lifting our, our souls to thee in song and rejoicing in what you have done for us through your precious Son. And at these moments, I would ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, for our reliance on your Holy Spirit to uh, convey holy revelation in such a way that you are truly exalted and you are truly honored. And and that the souls of each one that is here this morning, they would be uh, instructed and they would glory. We all would glory in the, the birth of your precious and holy son and the the significance of that give us understanding into the purpose of it and the significance of it cause these things to uh, warm our own souls and heart and and and, uh, empower us to to love you more deeply and more richly so we just commit our time to thee we ask these things in jesus name amen well, I don't know how it is with, uh, with all of you, but I am one of those who uh, does look forward to the, the Christmas season. I look forward to this time of year, and that's really been the case uh, since I was young. And I, as kind of as I was reflecting on this time of year and this week, I found that a bit interesting because in my case, I, I was not converted till I was 23 years of age. However, I, I still enjoyed this season of the year that's based upon the, on the person of Christ, still anticipated it and looked forward to it. And I was thinking to to whatever extent my case uh, might represent others, it means that there are are many who are not saved and are not converted and have no living relationship with Christ. They they don't submit to the lordship of Christ. They don't glory in the cross who are lost and without Christ in the world. But they enjoy the Christmas season that is based upon his birth. They look forward to this time of the year, maybe time with family and and seeing Christmas lights and scenes that include Santa Claus and reindeer and mangers and shepherds and all this kind of blends together. So in light of that, I thought it'd be helpful to draw our attention to a text that, at least in my own view, immediately, clearly, powerfully cuts through all the distraction and the confusion and reveals why Jesus was born and why he came into this world and Verse 21 of this chapter is such a text. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shall call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. And I did have a certain hesitation in coming to this text because I preached on it before at this time of the year. And I don't want to overdo it, so to speak. Uh, but my own heart was drawn to it. I think it's because it gives such immediate clarity to the exact purpose of our Lord's birth. It's sort of like uh, being on a shore, uh, looking out under the Puget Sound, or at least it would be this way for me. You might see a large ship, and there's writing on the side, and there's a flag flying, but you can't quite make it out. But then if you have binoculars, immediately it comes into focus, and you can read the letters, and you can identify the, the flag. And this text functions like that in very short compass. That There's instant precision as to why Jesus was born, and why he took on human flesh. So this morning, it's my intention to direct our minds specifically to uh, this text, and uh, so this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day will we'll focus particularly on, on texts that are related to uh, Christmas and after that we'll be back into our studies in Hebrews. But I want to take a, a few moments to put this verse in context, so a little longer of an introduction than I normally do. So the theme of verses 18 to 25 is the birth of Christ. It's told from Joseph's perspective as opposed to Mary, which uh, Luke's account uh, brings forth and if we simply uh, take the verses in order uh, verse 18 i'm calling it a, a tr- there's a troubling discovery now the birth of jesus christ was as follows when his mother mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I'm calling this a troubling discovery, um, at least on Joseph's part. And the essence of the trouble is he and Mary had been betrothed to each other. We'll talk just a bit more about that. Before coming together and, and having physical relations, she was found to be with child and, and Joseph did not though, not know at this time that this was this conception was affected by the Holy Spirit, but he did know that he was not the father. Uh, Betrothal is like engagement, but more so, if you have a New American Standard over in the margin, it defines it as the the first stage of marriage in Jewish culture, usually lasting a year before the wedding night, more legal than engagement. It was a a formal prenuptial contract that entered into before witnesses, could only be broken by a formal process of divorce, So a shorter definition would be to become legally promised in marriage to someone else. William Hendrickson said it in a restricted sense. This was essentially marriage. And you might notice in verse 19, Joseph already is referred to as her husband. And we find this phrase, before they came together, that would be before the second stage of marriage, before they lived together and had relations. Uh, Carson writes, the phrase affirms that Mary's pregnancy was discovered while she was still betrothed, and the context presupposes both Mary and Joseph had been chased. And we read she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. One older commentator, John, brought us, wrote, this does not imply any attempt at concealment, but merely states that it was then ascertained. The expression is consistent with the view that she herself discovered the fact and then through information conveyed in a suitable way it was ascertained by Joseph. The, The narrative is marked by great delicacy. A little reflection will suggest reasons why a divine revelation on the subject was made to Mary beforehand and to Joseph only after the fact became apparent. Carson writes that Mary was found to be with child does not suggest a secret attempt at concealment, but only that her pregnancy became obvious. And this eventuality had already been conveyed to Mary. Let me just read to you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He shall be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God." So she'd been apprised of this eventuality so from Joseph's perspective in verse 18, it was a troubling discovery. Well, then we come to verse 19, which I'm describing or calling a, a heart-wrenching decision on Joseph's part. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. A righteous man means that he was a uh, trying to live his life in conformity to God's law, which is certainly true of any believer. We don't rely on God's law to become a Christian, but we do if we are saved, an evidence of conversion is seeking to live our lives in conformity with God's law. That's what what I think is meant here by Joseph being a righteous man. Uh, David was a converted man in Psalm 119, 97. He said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. A good example of this would be Zacharias and Elizabeth. This is from Luke chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. He had a, a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So that their righteousness is understood, understood in the context of them seeking to live a life in conformity with the law. Well, this had to be a very difficult time for Joseph um, because his discovery did not would not have comported with his understanding of Mary's character. Hendrickson writes, Joseph must have agonized about the proper thing to do under these circumstances. He loved Mary and wanted to have her with him as his wife, but above all, he was a righteous man. Carson writes, Because he was a righteous man, Joseph therefore could not in good conscience marry Mary, who was now thought to be unfaithful, and because such a marriage would have been a tacit admission of his own guilt. And we notice also in the text here that he did not want to subject her to any kind of public disgrace. One writes, he was unwilling to expose her to the disgrace of a public divorce. Joseph, therefore, he chose a quieter way permitted by the law itself, the full rigor of the law might have led to Mary stoning, though that was rarely carried out in the first century. Still, a public divorce was possible, though Joseph was apparently unwilling to expose Mary to such shame. The law also allowed for a private divorce between two witnesses it would leave both his righteousness and his compassion intact. So verse 19, we see there's this very difficult, heart-wrenching decision on the part of Joseph. Then verse 20, there's a, a welcome revelation, or you could think a welcome divine revelation. Behold, When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. When he had considered this, considering is to reflect on something, is revolving the matter and thought without a clear perception of outlet. So when he had considered this, there was a surprise, glorious, divine intervention. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the word behold, Here is to see. It points to a a surprising or an unexpected type of action. You might recall, remember when Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage and because Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they wouldn't fall down and worship a golden image. They were thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And and the king, this is from Daniel 4.34, the king was astounded, and he said, was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? And then in verse 25, this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word occurs as look. Uh, He answered and said, Look, or behold, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So it's a term that registers surprise. Joseph, as he considered these eventualities, he received a surprise, unexpected angelic visitation, and he was informed that he could take Mary as his wife because this conception was a direct activity, or because of the direct activity of the Holy Spirit. Well then we arrive at verse twenty one after this welcomed informative intervention and this is a there 's a clear injunction here about what his name should be, and also a distinct declaration in regard to the the purpose of his birth. She will bear a son, you shall name him Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins now Carson noted that uh, that in patriarchal times, either the mother or the father could name the child. An example would be Genesis four, twenty-five, and twenty-six. And Mary was told Jesus' name, but Joseph was told the name, and the reason for it Leon Morris wrote, On this occasion, the name is not to be left to the discretion of the parent, for this child is special and has a destiny that is expressed in the meaning of the name. Uh, There are several Joshuas in the Old Testament. Carson writes, at least most of them are not very significant, but two others are used in the New Testament as types of Christ Joshua, the successor to Moses, and the one who led the people into the promised land, and Joshua, the high priest, who was a contemporary of Zerubbabel. The important thing here, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which, whether in the long form Yahweh is salvation, or in the short form Yahweh saves, identifies Mary's son as the one who brings Yahweh's promised salvation. So the significant point here is, is that the name is consistent with the mission. The name Jesus is consistent with the mission. And I think it gives a bit greater force to the centrality of the purpose of his mission to save his people from their sins. So this is the reason why he was born. This is why he came into the world. This is why he became flesh, to save his people from their sins I find this declaration, it's very helpful because it just kind of cuts through any confusion and distraction and immediately gives clarity of mind. And so with that kind of a lengthy introduction, I want to to, um, kind of press this purpose of our Lord's birth more deeply into our minds by means of three features of salvation, three considerations or three features of this salvation. Notice in the first place the certainty of its accomplishment, the certainty of its accomplishment. Uh, this mission will be accomplished. The purpose will be fulfilled. It's, it's not um, he may or hopefully or possibly, but he shall save his people. The, the term save, it can mean um, to preserve from harm or to rescue or to deliver. It's used um, of delivering from death in in the midst of a storm, we read in Matthew chapter eight and verse twenty-five: the disciples they came to him and awoke, saying, "Lord, save us! Lord, we are perishing." When Peter was walking on the water, and Matthew fourteen thirty, seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, "Lord, save me!" It's used to designate a deliverance from disease. In Matthew 9:21, 21, it's translated, get well. Verse 20 says, Behold, a woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I can only touch his garment, I will get well. I will be saved. I'll be delivered from this malady. Um, And and it's also used to mean salvation or deliverance from eternal death. That's how it's here used. It's used here many times in the New Testament. Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or First Corinthians 1:21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So what is stressed in this text is that the salvation will most certainly be accomplished. And this is clear from other teaching in the New Testament as well. In Second Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And 1 Timothy 1:15 Paul writes this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So our Lord is not presented here as coming into the world to make salvation possible like you know I hope somebody responds to this message but rather to accomplish it and to carry it out The the, the teaching that, that God accomplishes salvation, remember that Jesus is God, this is embedded in the teaching of the Old Testament as well. In Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. The blessing be upon thy people. Psalm 25.5, lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. Psalm 62.1, my soul waits in silence for God only. Uh, from him is my salvation. Isaiah 12.2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the, the Lord God is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. Micah 7:7. 7, 7, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Habakkuk 3.18, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. A very clear example I think is brought out in the prayer of Jonah, that he prayed from the belly of the great fish. It says in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou dost hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me all thy breakers and billows passed over me so I said I've been expelled from thy sight nevertheless I will look again toward thy holy temple water encompassed me to the point of death the great deep engulfed me weeds were wrapped around my head I "'Descended to the roots of the mountains. "'The earth with its bars was around me forever. "'But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. "'While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, "'and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. "'Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, "'but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving.'" That which I have vowed I will pay. And then he said the last thing he says is salvation is of the Lord, or salvation is from the Lord. And what makes this especially applicable to our own thinking process here is this salvation, this, uh, this salvation, this deliverance, is notice the intensity of his prayer and the location from which he was praying and the last words of his prayer, salvation is from the Lord. So he details his descent into the realm of death and he realizes at this time, if he's going to be saved, if he's going to be rescued, there's only one being, one person that can do that, and that is God. He learned that salvation is of the Lord. And, and this, this persuasion of God accomplishing salvation and Christ accomplishing salvation, I, I think it's needed because it's easy to uh, be somewhat discouraged with the pervasive evil of our times or the unprecedented normalization of all kinds of perversity, but as disheartening as those, those things are, it's important to realize there's no power that can stop the salvation. Of, of those whom Christ came to save. Uh, Jesus, who created and, stain, and sustains the world, will save his people. He, he says, on another occasion, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's the people who are saved, who are added to the church. So the first factor here that informs our understanding of this salvation, it's marked by certainty. Secondly, it's characterized by exclusivity He will will save not everybody, not everyone, but he will save his people from their sins. He saved Peter, he saved James, he saved John, but he didn't save Judas. Uh, Jude 1.4 says certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. So he, he doesn't save everybody. And we have noted that I think one of the most obvious observations from the Bible, as well as our times, is many are not saved. There are many people that we all know that they're not saved. They're not converted. And if we ask the question, well, why is anybody at all saved? I think a good biblical answer is that God has a people. He has a people that is given to the Son before the foundation of the world, and not 50% or 75% or 90%, but all of those people without exception will be saved. We read in our Lord's Prayer prior to... Um, the night before he was crucified, this is from John 17. He's praying, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. In verse 9, I ask on their behalf. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. So he prays specifically for those whom the Father has given him. And if we, uh, in John chapter 6, we read about what will happen to them. We, we touched on this text in our Sunday school class. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. All whom the Father gives me shall come to me. In John six thirty nine, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So all whom the Father has given him will come to him, and all who come to him he will not cast out, and, and he will raise them up on the last day. And John chapter 10 brings out characteristics of those whom the Father has given to the Son and the assurance that they will never be lost. Verse 24 says, The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow my These are characteristics of those who the Father has given to the Son. They hear his voice, and they follow him. He says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we see here the certainty of the salvation, the exclusivity of the salvation, and then thirdly, what I'm calling the specificity of the salvation. That is, the the rescue has a very specific goal or aim in mind here. It's to save or rescue people from their sins. If you've been in the downtown area of, of larger cities, you 've probably seen a building that, that has a sign that says Rescue mission," and that 's a place where the, the gospel goes out to um, lost people, especially those that have kind of hit bottom, maybe they 've lost their battle with drugs or, or alcohol. but with this rescue mission we 're talking about here it 's inclusive of that, but it 's much more comprehensive it's it centers from all walks of, of life, centers that are in the city in the city, but also centers that are in the suburbs and those that are behind bars and those that would even live in gated communities. So this rescue, this deliverance, is aimed at delivering a people. It's very specific. It's not from physical death because Christians still die. It's not from physical ailments because lots of people that love Jesus Christ are wracked with all kinds of debilitating illnesses. Rather, it's very specific. It's to save people from their sins. That's a specific aim. Carson writes, there was much Jewish expectation of a Messiah that would redeem Israel from Roman tyranny and even purify his people, whether by fiat or law. But there was no expectation that the Davidic Messiah would give his own life as a ransom to save his people from their sins. So they, they were looking for a political emancipator to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. In the New Testament, he writes, it refers to the comprehensive salvation inaugurated by Jesus that will be consummated at his return. And here it focuses on that which. Which is central, salvation from sins. For in the biblical, biblical perspective, sin is the basic cause of all other calamities. Now, we can note this idea of, of saving from sin is at least two ways. So we asked the question what does he save us from? He saves us from our sins. What does it mean that he saves us from our sins? Number one, from the penalty of sin. He delivers, because of what he has accomplished on the cross, he delivers from the guilt of sin, which is the idea of a liability to punishment, merited liability for punishment. It's warranted punishment because of our sins. More specifically, it's the punishment is the wrath of God poured out against sin, the eternal wrath of God poured out against sinners. This is the kind of salvation that's the heart of why Jesus Christ came to this world, especially answers the question, from what does Jesus say? Or what does Jesus save us from? And the answer is from the wrath of God that's poured out because of our sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let me just quote two passages of Scripture that that convey some sense of what this wrath that we're saved from is like. One is, it's fair to say, it is a terrifying kind of wrath. I'm just reading here from Revelation chapter 6. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs, unripe figs, when shaken by a great wind." And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And what stands out here is that this this... Exposure to the wrath of God is a a terrifying experience. It's poured out upon unrepentant sinners. And we notice here these are not cowards, but these are the commanders and the great men, those who would have demonstrated great valor in this world, but not on this day, not when the wrath of God is being poured out. And a second great illustration of this is from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And you're all we're all aware of the fact that God flooded the earth. It's amazing when you bring your mind back to it. He flooded the earth, he killed every single person on the planet except for Noah and his family. Killed everybody. And here's the question: why did God do that? I mean, why did he kill every single person? And the answer is: then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was so He made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky. For I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the totality of the earth, it's inundated with water here, and everybody is dispatched because of the sin of mankind. So the Lord came into the world to address this reality, and and because of this reality, this is what the gospel saves from. It's the outpouring of God's merited displeasure against human iniquity and sin or wickedness. This is the reason for the season. Uh, He saves his people based on the merit on the work of the cross from the penalty from the liability to eternal punishment because of our sin. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're, we're, because we are in Christ and because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, his atoning death, we're, we're saved from the wrath of God through the person of Christ. First Thessalonians 1, 9, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers from the wrath to come. Matthew Henry says in saving them from sin he saves them from wrath and the curse and all the misery here and hereafter well briefly much more briefly and secondly he 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 saves us from the power of sin that's at the heart of the gospel but also um, excuse me from the, the penalty of sin but also from the power of sin that is he doesn't leave men and women in their sins he saves us from the rule of sin and the reign of sin by the effectual work of the holy spirit in the soul who mortifies the deeds of the flesh. Matthew Henry says, Christ came to save his people, not in their sins, but from their sins, to purchase for them not a liberty to sin, but a liberty from sins, to redeem them from among men. He who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. So th- this is the reason why Christ came into the world. This is the purpose of the incarnation. This is really what it's all about. So let me just conclude by giving you three responses to this understanding. Number one, in, in line with this purpose, it- it's important to realize that therefore Christ will always save repentant sinners. That's why he came into this world. is he- always always open to saving sinners who are repentant, who are bothered by their sin. The Bible says he will in no wise cast people like that out. You might recall the... The account of the Pharisee and the publican, he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful. To me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So this means the Lord always has mercy on repentant sinners. He saves all of those who repent and turn to him and would trust to him. And closely related to this, I, I He always saves repentant sinners, even the worst kind, even those who have that we would think are, are the worst kinds of sinners that there are. I'm just going to read to you. We're getting close to being done here. You're doing good. Um, I I just want to read to you a a part of what Mark read last Lord's Day in our prayer meeting uh, about a man by the name of Manasseh. Um, He was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for for the Baals and made Ashram. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built all altars to the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. He built altars for the host of heaven. In the two courts of the house of the Lord, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Thus Manasseh misled Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of, of Israel. So, so we see here, I mean, he reversed all the reforms of his father, Hezekiah. He descended into this, this worst kind of depravity that included sorcery and child sacrifice. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but he paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, He entreated the Lord as God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, that is, when he prayed to God, God was moved by his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He knew that he was a sinner, and he knew that God is merciful to those who repent and turn to him in and saving faith. And then one final thought here, um, and that is that um, the purpose of our Lord's incarnation is also should correspond to your testimony and mine. The purpose of our Lord's incarnation, the reason He came into this world, should correspond to your testimony and mine. And the reason I say that is because about 30 years after he was converted, the Apostle Paul, um, and this is kind of in the context of a testimony, um, the Apostle Paul wrote, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I mean, he just took... The, the, the purpose for the Lord coming into this world and applied it to himself. This is my testimony, except he added, of whom I am chief. Now what I'm arguing is that when you and I are, are thinking rightly and lucidly and clearly, that's your testimony and mine as well. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, you, am chief. This is the glory of the gospel. He came into this world to save sinners. This is what it's about. This is why he took on human flesh. And let us pray. Father, I ask that you might take what we have considered this morning uh, and apply it to our own souls. We, We thank you that you are a perfect savior of sinners and that you receive all of those who repent, all of those who Turn to thee. We, we thank you that you sent your holy Son into this world to accomplish salvation. And we thank you for the success of that great and glorious mission. We do thank you that you have been pleased to awaken our hearts and to awaken our minds and, uh, and our hearts to the glory and the power of the gospel. And I, I would pray this morning, Father, that you you would use this to hearten our own souls. And also, if there's anyone here, and they, they truly are strangers to the glory of your marvelous grace through your Son, that you would open their hearts to, that they would perceive that Christ is a perfect, eternal, glorious, savior of sinners and you would empower them and you would assist them and you would help them to trust in him and rely on him and turn to him and be saved both now and forever and we ask these things in jesus name amen